Welcome to the Evolution of Medicine podcast, the place health professionals come to hear from innovators and agitators leading the charge. We cover the latest clinical breakthroughs and health technology, as well as practical tools to help you transform your practice and the health of your community. This podcast is brought to you by the Lifestyle Matrix Resource Center, who provide a range of options to help you deliver successful, effective, functional, and integrated medicine. To find out more and to get started, go to goevomed.com LMRC. That's goevomed.com LMRC. Hello and welcome to the podcast. This month we are diving deep into really important clinical information, specifically around vitamin K and vitamin K2. Dr. Leon Schurgers is a professor of biochemistry, uh, all around vascular calcification. Uh, he is from the University of Maastricht. Uh, I had the first chance to see him back at the Integrated Health Symposium a few years ago. In this incredible half an hour, we talked about calcification of the heart. We talked about the role of vitamin K2 as it comes to reducing cardiovascular risk. And then we also talked about why vitamin K2 supplementation is important, what the best form is, how to test for it. Really, really interesting half an hour. I think a must listen for any practitioner on the front lines of functional and integrative medicine. Enjoy. So a warm welcome to the podcast, Dr. Shergers. Welcome, Doc. Welcome. Nice to, uh, to be on your show. So, you know, actually, uh, the first time we connected, I was actually at your lecture at the Integrated Health Symposium a few years ago, and it was very difficult for me to get in through the door because there were that many people lining up to learn about vitamin K2. So uh, you must have made quite an impression. I don't know. I didn't see that because there were so many people there. <laughs> So let's just start with this. So vitamin K, probably the least known of the vitamins. What, what got you started into vitamin K research? It's actually a good question. And as with many things, I think it was serendipity. I was doing an internship at the University of Maastricht in the Netherlands. And I came in a lab that was working on vitamin K-dependent proteins. And actually, that was my starting moment. And I felt directly attached to this, to this topic. And so I stayed there. So what were some initial discoveries that, that you found with vitamin K that kind of uh, got the juices flowing and, and made you want to sort of participate fully in this uh, research area? So it was actually the start of my PhD project. So after my internship, I got a PhD position offered or a PhD trajectory. So doing my PhD in that same lab. And I was working on the difference between vitamin K1 and vitamin K2. And we can dive into a little bit more in, into the details of the two different vitamins. But actually, that was really the starting moment that I felt, okay, there is so much to learn about vitamin K. And it's not just one vitamin, but it's, it's, it's a flavor of different K vitamins. And so that was really the start. And because I also worked on newly discovered vitamin K-dependent proteins. That was really something that I really got intrigued in this, into this topic. So let's just do, can you do a quick summation of uh, K1 and K2 and what the differences are and, and what they do? Yeah, so everybody considers vitamin K as vitamin K, so there is only one flavor. But we found out, or at least it, it was already known, but we really dived into the food items that have 
either vitamin K1 or food items that have vitamin K2. And I think we were the first in my PhD thesis to describe food items that were rich in vitamin K2. And if you look at that, there is really a difference. So the activity as being a cofactor in what they, what they really have to do in the body, that is the same. But the side chain between K1 and K2 vitamins is completely different. So there is a difference in side lengths and a difference in lipovelocity. And because of that difference of side chain, there is either a better absorption for vitamin K2, but also a longer half-life in the circulation. So it stays around longer than, for example, vitamin K1. And that is really a huge difference. So even if the majority of vitamin K is K1 in food. Hey, sorry, doc. Sorry, okay. my, my internet just went uh, out for a minute then. I think it was no like uh, doing that. So let me just, uh, can you, can we, let's start with that question again. So of course, uh, can you share a little bit about the difference between K1 and K2? So actually vitamin K is always, was always considered as, as one vitamin, but uh, my topic was to differentiate between K1 and K2. And what we, uh, analyzed is food items that were either rich in K1 or food items that were rich in vitamin K2. And there was no food table available for vitamin K2. And so vitamin K1 is mainly present in green leafy vegetables, so all the healthy food. And K2 was more in fermented food. So it is of bacterial origin. So it's produced by bacteria. And so you find it in sauerkraut or fermented cheese, for example. And the difference between K1 and K2 is not the naphthoquinone ring structure, which is the same in K1 and K2. And that is actually the active um, uh, group in the vitamin K, but the difference lies in the side chain. And so the side chain determines how good vitamin K is absorbed and how long the half-life in plasma is. And especially for the K2 vitamins, they are way better absorbed than K1. Interesting. So I know one of the focuses of your work has been in cardiovascular risk, and this is something that I'm, you know, just particularly passionate about because it's hit very close to home um, for you know for friends and family, and specifically calcification. So can you help us understand like what causes calcification? What are kind of the the, the drugs that are recommended? How does that play in? And then what role vitamin K two plays specifically in that process? So calcification is actually the precipitation of calcium phosphate salts in soft tissue. And that is the, the pathological calcification. Calcification has to happen in teeth and in bone, eh, where it is physiological, but in the soft tissues, you want to prevent that. And maybe everybody knows from, from chemistry lessons, if you have calcium and you have phosphate, if they see each other, they're insoluble. They form a complex, they nucleate, and they become a crystal. And we have in our body, we have proteins, that actively regulate calcification and inhibit calcification. And one of the strongest inhibitors is matrix GLA protein, a vitamin K dependent protein produced by vascular smooth muscle cells in our vasculature. And this MGP inhibits the precipitation of calcium phosphate salts in this soft tissue. But it can only do that when it is activated. And the activation of MGP happens in the presence of vitamin K. So vitamin K activates MGP and thereby MGP protects our soft tissues from calcification. Interesting. So how much research is there into this topic now? 
There is more and more. So when I started, which was uh, end, uh, late uh, 1990s, um, it, it, it was not that much. But now there is more and more uh, research into, uh, into vascular calcification. And actually, there is a nice uh, um, um, saying from that. When I started my research, I wanted to investigate vascular calcification and the connection to vitamin K. So I went to the Department of Pathology in our academic hospital and I asked the former director, do you have vascular specimens that are calcified? And he started laughing and he said, you know, all of them are nearly calcified. You know, these are old people that, that we get tissues from, people that have cardiovascular disease and calcification is always there. But Leon, why do you want to work on something that is a passive end stage process? And I said, you know, it's such an intriguing process, this calcification, that is not passive because it's, it's really actively regulated by cells and by proteins. I want to study that. And I, I became right um, because now today vascular calcification is one of the best predictors of cardiovascular mortality and morbidity. And it is really an independent predictor of that. Really interesting. You know, I know most of the people in, in the community and the practitioners that are listening to this are very interested in the potential for reversing chronic illness. So what is the potential to reverse calcification? <laughs> That's a very good question. And I think it's the $1 million, $1 million question, how to reverse calcification. So our research um, is at this moment aiming at stopping the process of calcium buildup in the tissues. And what we believe is, and, and we have some, some preclinical animal models in which we have tested that also in vitro models. If from the beginning, your vitamin K status is very good, then calcification can be prevented. However, once you have calcification, there is a kind of pressure. And what we achieved in these animal models is that with a high dose of vitamin K2, we could prevent the further growth of this calcification in our vasculature. And this is something, you know, by stopping this pathological aging process, this is really a big gain already because then you extend also elderly diseases by, by several years, for example. So only by stopping and blocking this process, this would already, would already be uh, fantastic. Yeah, let's let's talk. Okay, that so that, that makes a lot of sense. And and uh, obviously, the first thing that you, if you really want to reverse it, the first thing that you have to stop is it continuing to happen more, right? Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, I'm really interested about sources of vitamin K2 because when I looked at the 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 foods that have it, the natto and the cheese, I was just like. Where, where is this coming from in our diet? Because I don't eat natto regularly. I know some biohackers do, but it's not in the like conventional diet. And obviously, I think, I think there's some uh, way in which the microbiome is involved in, in the production. So what, what's happening in the microbiome to produce K2? And how, how far along is the research and the understanding of what microbes make that transformation? Yeah, so, so, so starting with the food, so we, we get vitamin K. So vitamin stands for a fatal imine. And actually the name says it all, it's a, it's a bioactive. We cannot produce it, so we have to take it from the food. So we get it either via, via green leafy vegetable in the source of K1 or by fermented foods. And that is, for example, cheese or sauerkraut. And of course you have this natto, but natto is only appreciated very much in Japan and outside Japan, nobody really eats and, and loves this, this, this rotten soybean as, 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 as it is. And so I think 100 years ago, before we had refrigerators, I think way more food was fermented 
because it was lying out there and, and bacteria grow on it. And so I think it's really important that fermented food um, and, and, and that this is really considered to be healthy. Now, in our body, we have also um, bacteria that are working together with us. So they are actually healthy, they are good. And most bacteria in our body are found in the colon, which is in the end part of our intestines. Now, the absorption of fat-soluble compounds is in the jejunum, which is the upper part of the small intestines. So it is today still questionable how much the microbiome really contributes to human nutrition or let's say dietary intake. And so there is not that much research at this moment going on, but it is a very interesting topic. And I think that we will learn from the microbiome in the near future way more. What are sort of the building blocks that have to go in to event, you know, to, for it to produce? Like what, what are the foods that have to like kind of come in to end up with those K, uh, vitamin K through the microbiome? I think the microbiome, so, so certain bacteria like the lactobacillus, for example, they make vitamin K. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what kind of foods, but I think all the healthy foods are always good, of course. Um, and these bacteria produce the vitamin, the vitamin K for their own health, for their own energy metabolism. And so they, they produce it just to, to, to support their own, own energy metabolism. Interesting. Okay. So... Um, I guess, you know, one of the things that happened this year, I think with COVID is people realizing that like your levels of, of vitamins can really affect the chances of you getting an, an illness. And I think with vitamin D3, for instance, with COVID, it was really clear that that was, um, you know, a pretty big factor. How do you even test your vitamin K levels? Is that something that people are doing? What's the best way to understand kind of where you are today and, and how much you're getting in your diet? It's a, it's a very good question. So, a, a clinical vitamin K deficiency would direct, directly been seen if because then you would have bleedings. So vitamin K is a very important cofactor to support normal blood clotting. So we need vitamin K for normal coagulation. And if you have a, a very severe vitamin K deficiency, you would end up with bleedings. And we see that, for example, in the hemorrhagic disease of the newborn. So if babies are born, they are vitamin K deficient, and you see that in bleedings. That is why we give them a shot of vitamin K. Now, in the elderly, we see a chronic vitamin K deficiency, which is leading to osteoporosis, so, so low bone mass. We see it in calcification of the vessel walls. So now how, how to test for this vitamin K deficiency? And there are a few ways that you can do that. One is to measure vitamin K directly in the circulation. And we do that with a very advanced technique. It's, it's, it's very timely and it's costly and it's not very easy to do. And it's also not that accurate because actually it predicts or tells you what you have eaten the day before. So if you eat a meal of spinach in the evening, the next day, your vitamin K1 levels are very high. If you eat a lot of natto in the evening, the next day you have a lot of MK7 in your bloodstream. Now, you can also measure the result of vitamin K, which is the activation of the vitamin K dependent proteins. And we have several that we can measure, for example, osteocalcin, but also matrix glab protein. And this was part of my postdoctoral period where I created antibodies against the active form of MGP or the inactive form of MGP. 
and we are able to measure the inactive form of MGP, which is a result of vitamin K deficiency. And actually, that is the most accurate way of, of determining a vitamin K deficiency. Interesting. So, okay, so now you've identified where they are, where patients are. Um, you know, I know a lot of practitioners in our community now are recommending vitamin K, you know, for their, for their patients. Um, obviously, uh, sauerkraut is a great easy way to, to do it on a consistent basis. And I've even enjoyed uh, making sauerkraut with my daughter. It's been, you know, it's pretty easy. Um, but I guess I was wondering, uh, what's the best form of, 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 of vitamin K uh, for it to be taken by humans? Like what's the best, uh, best way to supplement? Yeah, so, yeah, so you have several forms. You have vitamin K1 and K2. And then K2, we can subdivide into menaquinone, MK4, MK7, MK9. So these are the most popular ones. And actually, we tested all of them in terms of absorption, but also in terms of, of uh, half-life in the body. And what we found is that MK7, which is actually produced by these bacteria that are on these natto, natto uh, fermented soybeans. This MK7 has the best absorption, so it is extremely well absorbed, and it has a very long half-life, so it stays available in the circulation, available for all the tissues, not only for the liver, but also for the bone and also for the vasculature. So if we consider dietary intake of K vitamins, we found that MK7 has the best uh, qualities. So interesting. Um, so in that regard, like you, I'm sure you have your sort of eye on the ball of what's going on in, in vitamin K research generally, uh, you know, across. So what are the kinds of conditions outside of cardiovascular health where it seems like vitamin K deficiency may be playing a role and vitamin K supplementation might be uh, useful in, in helping with specific conditions? So actually every tissue that makes vitamin K dependent proteins. And so we have in the teeth and in the bone, we have uh, cells that produce osteocalcin, which is a vitamin K dependent protein. In our endothelial cells, we produce protein S, which is a vitamin K dependent protein. In our liver, we synthesize the coagulation factors. And factor two, seven, nine, and 10 are vitamin K dependent proteins. So in any tissue where we find vitamin K dependent proteins, the role of vitamin K is really important. For example, bone, we need vitamin K to support uh, healthy bone, a good bone quality. In the cartilage, we also produce MGP by chondrocytes. So vitamin K is important for cartilage cells. And so also besides the vasculature, more tissues in our body really benefit from extra vitamin K. Interesting. I one topic that this, you know, you mentioned um, osteocalcin a little bit earlier. Uh, can you understand sort of the, the, the mechanism, what's happening in bone health? So osteocalcin is a, is a protein that is produced by the osteoblast, which is the bone forming cell. And researchers in the United States found out that this osteocalcin is really important in laying down the calcium in the bone but in a way that it interacts with the collagen. Remember, if you have bones which are very calcified, they become brittle because that is, they are very hard. But the bone, although it is very hard, needs also to be very flexible because we jump and we, we, we you know, our, our muscles pull uh, on, on, on these bones. So there needs to be strength 
combined with flexibility. And so we need collagen. And this osteocalcin lays down this calcium matrix in the bone in such a way that we have orderly mineralization supporting strong bones. It's really interesting, isn't it? How, you know, one, one nutrient like calcium and bones becomes a big deal. Suddenly everyone should be drinking milk and, you know, old people should be taking calcium. And ultimately there's sort of like this point of no return or like there's this like inflection point where like the, the, the focus on one nutrient and forgetting everything else actually sort of has these detrimental effects. And ultimately it's more of like a systems or a, you know, a sort of a holistic uh, way of thinking that's necessary to really chart a progress towards long-term healthy bones. Yes. I think it has also to do uh, with, with, with evolution, you know, till you're 40 years old, you need to build strong bones. But actually, out of evolution, we know that we, we didn't become that old. And nowadays, people become, on average, 80 years old. And so in these last 40 years, actually, this whole mechanism of building bone is not necessary anymore. And this excess of calcium and these metabolism, this metabolism that, that actually supports the calcification of other tissues, which is actually detrimental. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Um, I guess just to go back to the cardiovascular health, you know, ultimately, you know, we have cardiologists that watch this, but we also have, you know, practitioners that, um, you know, are more focused on nutrition. And I guess, you know, just, I guess just to look a, a little bit at the state of cardiology and, you know, how important do you think this research is in the context of, you know, creating healthy human hearts? Um, and, and, and what, what is the current standard of care doing to the human heart? And, and what is, from your perspective, what is, how do we facilitate healthy human hearts throughout uh, lifetimes? Yeah. So, so proving that a bioactive is really important for vascular health is really difficult and convincing medical doctors, cardiologists, internal medicine, hematologists, um, that vitamin K a nutrient is really important to support vascular health is even more difficult. So what we did in, in the past is we went to a medical drug that is called warfarin. And warfarin is a vitamin K antagonist. So what it does, it blocks the recycling of vitamin K. And this is a drug that is prescribed by doctors. And actually it was looking back, a smart move, because I could convince medical doctors that this vitamin K antagonist, so this drug that interacts with the metabolism of vitamin K, created more calcification. And this is something that is now really um, established. If you give patients warfarin, they end up with more cardiovascular calcification. And then it becomes very logical also for the medical doctors, if vitamin K antagonists are detrimental, causing calcification, it is very logic to reason that vitamin K prevents and maybe even inhibits that. So I think that nowadays there is more and more awareness that vitamin K can be a treatment to prevent cardiovascular calcification and to support vascular health. Absolutely. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, I, sometimes you have to go a little bit uh, in, a, in an unexpected order, right, to evolve, uh, evolve the way in which healthcare is delivered. And um, yeah, look, I really appreciate you, you coming on and, and sharing. And I hope that for 
the doctors and practitioners that are listening, you know, this stimulates some, some thinking about vitamin K, um, about how to use it. We will have in the show notes, um, we actually have a white paper from your talk uh, that was at the Integrated Health Symposium. So practitioners who want to like go deep into the mechanism, understand how to find it, how to work with it, um, we'll share that in the, in the show notes. But um, Doc, thank you so much for being part of the Evolution of Medicine podcast. You know, we're fiercely committed to, you know, looking at what are optimal ways for chronic disease prevention and reversal. And I think that a lot of what you shared here is um, things that, you know, our community needs to know to do medicine well. And uh, I hope that we can be on the front lines of really creating, um, you know, creating a system that facilitates healthy heart health throughout a a lifetime. So thank you for yeah. being part of the part of the conversation. Couldn't agree more. And it was a pleasure to be on the show. All right. So we have been so grateful to be here with Dr. Leon Shergers. He is one of the leaders in the world of vitamin K research all the way uh, from the Netherlands, Germany border. Thanks so much for being part of the show. I'm your host, James Maskell, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Evolution of Medicine podcast. Please share this with colleagues who need to hear it. Thanks so much to our sponsors, the Lifestyle Matrix Resource Center. This podcast is really possible because of them. Please visit goevomed.com LMRC to find out more about their clinical tools like the Group Visit Toolkit. That's goevomed.com LMRC. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.